my weekly's magical flying bookshop your feel-good fiction podcast sponsored by pavers pop on your favorite pair of slippers curl up in the comfiest chair and listen to your favorite authors chat away in my weekly's magical flying bookshop landing wherever you are so come on in and join me claire gill our bookshop host as we hear from one of my weekly's favorite authors like any good story there are three parts to our podcast in the first chapter we kick off with a short story or an extract from our guest's latest book the middle chatty chapter is quiz the author where the author answers all your questions followed by book post our final cozy chapter with a roundup of the hotly tipped book of the week this week we are joined by the talented heidi swain Passionate about gardening and the countryside, as well as vintage paraphernalia, Norfolk-based Heidi Swain has a festive treat for us with her 13th novel, Underneath the Christmas Tree. Best-selling author Heidi writes with heart, heaps of Christmas sparkle and delicious slices of romance. Welcome Heidi to the My Weekly Magical Flying Bookshop. Do come in. It's so lovely to have you here. Thank you so much for asking me to join you. This is fantastic. And I can't believe that you said that that's my 13th book. How on earth has that happened? 13, that's amazing. It's gone so quickly, hasn't it? So fast. We can't wait to chat to you about it. Thank you. Chapter one, Reading Corner. Make yourself at home with a comfy chair and cuppa as Heidi reads you a short story she wrote and was published in my weekly's Christmas, December 2020 issue called Snowed In for Christmas. My Weekly prides itself on its fabulous fiction. Take it away, Heidi. When children's author Cass Greenwood announced that she was going away for Christmas, her parents were horrified. But your sister is coming home, her mother had unnecessarily reminded her. She's had to fight to get time off and your father and I are convinced she's going to make an announcement. That had been the clincher for Cass. It wasn't Catherine's fault, but having her sister's perfect career, perfect partner and now no doubt perfect pregnancy paraded in front of her for the entire festive season was more than she could bear. Suffering from a crippling creative block which was proving impossible to shift, the last thing Cass needed was to have her siblings' successes highlighted. So she was heading to Scotland in the hope that two weeks in a remote Highland cottage would give her brain a break and restore her writing mojo. Well, it's all booked now, she said. I'm not cancelling. She refused to apologise, especially given that her parents had assumed she would be going to them rather than asking what her plans were. I'm leaving tomorrow, she firmly said. I'll see you all next year. The drive was tiring and the further north she went, the whiter the landscape became. She was pleased the cottage owner had offered to stock the cupboards. With supplies laid in and with no interruptions, she would be able to properly relax. It was dark when she arrived at the white-washed crofter's cottage and the air was freezing. Cass slipped down the snow-covered path, grateful for the warm glow she could see through the windows and the reassuring smell of wood smoke which hung in the air. She found the key under a pot and let herself in. 
The cottage was tiny but perfect. There was a real Christmas tree, beautifully decorated, lit with sparkling fairy lights and lengths of green ivy, boughs of glossy holly studded with ruby berries and bunches of mistletoe adorned every surface. With a scent of cinnamon in the air, the squishy sofa waiting to envelop her and the comforting crackle of the logs in the grate, Cass had never seen a more magical hideaway. The next two weeks were going to be bliss. A sudden hammering on the door pulled her out of a wistful reverie, and she jumped. The owner had said she wouldn't be disturbed, and she hadn't seen any other properties nearby. Who is it? she called, her voice quavering as she wished she'd locked the door behind her. Josh Addington, I can't find the key, came the quick response. Can you let me in? It's really coming down out here. Cass didn't know what to do. She'd booked the cottage from a woman named Isla Ferguson. She had no idea who Josh Addington was, or why he was looking for the key to her sanctuary. Are you there? he shouted again. Can you open up? With her heart hammering, Cass opened the door, then took a hasty step back as the guy who looked more snowman than human rushed inside. Thanks, he said, closing the door and stamping the snow off his boots. I know the forecast predicted snow, but I was not expecting... His words trailed off as he pushed his dark hair away from his face and spotted Cass, who appeared wide-eyed and mildly terrified. Oh, he said. Hi. You must be Isla. No, said Cass, unnerved to feel her heart racing at the sight of his intensely blue eyes and dark lashes. I'm not. I'm Cass Greenwood. Well, he said, I wasn't expecting a meet and greet, but hi. Do you want to show me around? Not especially, she frowned, and I'm not here to meet you. I've booked the cottage for the next two weeks. I've only just arrived myself. But I've booked the cottage for that time too, Josh frowned back, pulling out a booking form which was identical to the one Cass had presented him with. Kirkburn Cottage had been double booked. With no phone signal or landline and with the wind howling and the snow falling thick and fast, it was impossible to contact Isla or drive to the nearest village to look for alternative accommodation. Not that either Cass or Josh were willing to do that. I'm really sorry, said Cass, but I'm not leaving. I've spent the best part of the day driving here and I really need this holiday. Why do you think I've arrived so late? Josh stubbornly countered. I've driven for hours too. You're not the only one who needs a break. They had reached an impasse, and with the snow dashing against the windows, the pair had no choice but to draw straws for the bedroom and hunker down for the night. Next morning, the blizzard had blown itself out, but Cass and Josh were taken aback by the view. Their cars were little more than hillocks, and the snow had drifted halfway up the cottage door. I don't think we'll be driving anywhere for a while, do you? Josh frowned down at Cass. No, she agreed. It looks like we're stuck with each other. Having quietly shared breakfast, made a recce of supplies and waited patiently for the bathroom, Cass announced she was going for a walk. There's a bridge over the stream into the woods, she elaborated, feeling determined to salvage something from the holiday's unexpected turn. I'm heading that way too, said Josh. I'll come with you. Josh and Cass held hands as they crossed the slippery bridge and so entranced by what they discovered on the other side, their former frostiness thawed and they almost forgot to let go. Wow, they chorused. And I thought the cottage felt magical, whispered Cass, her breath streaming ahead of her. Together they explored the dense pine and fir woods and more than once 
Cass thought she saw something move out of the corner of her eye. It could have been a bird, or even a change in the light as the sun penetrated the beautiful wintry scene. But Cass's imagination was in overdrive. Look, Josh pointed as they made their way back, their pockets full of pine cones. Two roe deer stood on the path. They leapt into the trees as Cass's phone suddenly rang and she grinned up at Josh. Their eyes locked and Cass felt her cheeks flush with more than the cold as she answered the call. Cass, gasped her mother. We saw the forecast. Are you safe? Yes, Cass smiled. I'm here. I'm safe. And I have company too, so don't worry about me. She quickly explained what had happened before the signal cut out, feeling much more inclined to wish everyone back at home a Merry Christmas. Why were you so keen to get away for Christmas? Cass asked Josh during their lunch of hearty soup and soft warm bread. Family, Josh simply said. My mother has a bee in her bonnet about finding me a more stable job and fixing me up with the daughter of her best friend. You? You're not keen, said Cass, bouncing the question back. No, he grinned, on both fronts. I'm happy in my work and more than capable of finding the right girl for myself. I've just been waiting for her to stumble into my path. Cass's heart skittered. She had known Josh for less than 24 hours. His presence had put pay to her plans for a solitary seasonal celebration. And yet there was something about him which made her feel comforted and safe and not at all resentful. The warm smile he gave her suggested he felt the same. So, he said, what about you? Cass then found herself telling him all about the situation with her family and how she'd recently been struggling to focus on her work. A little later, with her head still full of the woods, she unpacked her notebook and started to write. She carried on for hours and went to bed exhausted but also exhilarated that her creativity hadn't deserted her for good. She imagined the woodland fairy clan, who she named the Fay family, living among the trees with all manner of magical creatures, and she was bursting to record their adventures. Cass and Josh's Highland holiday followed the same pattern for the next few days. They talked, laughed, walked in the woods, and in the evenings Cass wrote down the stories she had narrated during their snowy strolls. Josh was engrossed in something too, but Cass didn't ask what. There's been more snow, she noticed as she emerged from the bedroom on Christmas Eve morning. I've seen, Josh smiled, expertly arranging logs next to the burner. We better head out early today. Happy Christmas Eve, by the way. And you too, she smiled back. In the woods, Cass was delighted to again hit the signal hotspot and quickly video called her parents, this time pulling Josh into shot. You look amazing, Cass, her sister beamed. The Scottish air agrees with you. Something certainly does, her dad chimed in. Cass flushed and shook her head. Merry Christmas, they all happily shouted from opposite ends of the country. Cass felt surprisingly pleased to have spoken to them as she and Josh headed back to the cottage. What's this? she asked, noticing a book on the table once they were inside again. My sketchbook, said Josh. I don't know how it got there, though. Take a look. Cass gasped as she flicked through the pages. It's the Fay family, she whispered, taking in the intricate ink drawings, exactly as I imagined them. You drew these, she asked, looking at Josh with even stronger feelings than before. My head's been full of them since that first walk in the woods, he smiled, and when you described them I just had to bring them to life. So this is your unstable line of work, she swallowed, only then realising that he hadn't told her what he did. 
and you're an artist. And illustrator, he said. I've never drawn anything like this before, though. They're perfect, said Cass. They have to go in the book. She hadn't even pitched the idea to her agent, but Cass could already see the beautifully illustrated book on the shelves. A professional collab, nodded Josh. I'd be up for that. A gust of wind blew the door open and Josh rushed to close it. Picking up the mistletoe which had been knocked from its hook above the threshold, he carried it over to Cass and held it up. Their first kiss was sweet, tender and filled with magic. The Faye family clearly had more than a professional partnership in mind for the two strangers who found themselves snowed in for Christmas. Thanks, Heidi. Oh, I remember when I commissioned you to write that story last year and it's it's one of my favourite Christmas short stories for my weekly. Thanks for that heartwarming, fabulous short story, Heidi. And we can't wait to hear about your new novel as well after this short break. We hope you're enjoying my weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop. Whether you're curled up at home in your favourite pair of slippers or listening as you stroll in the perfect pair of comfortable shoes. We're sponsored by Pavers, the family-run shoe company founded by Kathy Paver in 1971. Oh, happy 50th birthday, Pavers. With hundreds of styles available for women and men, Pavers prides himself on having a wide range of sizes available, one to 10 for women, and six to 14 for men, as well as a huge range of widths for each size and style, all so that you can find your perfect style. And you can feel good about shopping there too. Pavers is the first major shoe retailer to achieve carbon neutral international certification and has given away more than a million pounds to date through the Pavers Foundation, where employees can apply for grants for their local community. Plus, until the end of August, 2022, my weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop listeners can get free delivery. Just quote weekly one, that's W-E-E-K-L-Y one, as in the number one, when you order. So whether you're tucked up at home, out for a walk, heading into the office, or dressing up for a special occasion, find your perfect style at pavers.co.uk. That's P-A-V-E-R-S.co.uk. Now, Let me top up my tea and then let's get back to the episode. Chapter 2. Quiz the author. This is the chapter where you get to quiz your favourite author. And don't forget you can send in your questions for future guests. Leave a voicemail on 01382 575 486 or record a voice memo on your phone and email it to flyingbookshop at myweekly.com. .co.uk or just send an email to that address with your question. Follow us on social media to find out who our next guests are or head over to the website www.myweekly.co.uk forward slash podcast. Here we are on our beautiful bookshelf with its stunningly sparkly snowy Christmas cover underneath the Christmas tree by Heidi Swain. As the blurb says, Winter Trees is the home of Christmas, but for Liza Winter, it's a millstone around her neck. The Christmas tree farm was her father's pride and joy, but now he's gone. She can't have anything to do with it until her father's business partner decided to retire and she must come back to handle the transition to his son, Ned. 
Will the place where she grew up make her change her mind? And can it weave its Christmas cheer around her heart? Coined as the perfect festive read, full of snowfall, warm fires and heartwarming seasonal romance, as fellow author Millie Johnson said, lock the door, pour some mulled wine and settle into this wonderful Christmas treat. Out of all your books you've written, this is your sixth Christmas one. You have three series set in fictitious Winbridge, Nightingale Square and Winmouth. You write two titles a year, a summer and a Christmas book. This book is unique in that it's the first time you have visited Winmouth in the winter. How was it? Absolutely joyous. I came across the idea for this book such a long time ago, and then it was just a case of finding the perfect place for it. Um, I'm not even sure if I'd written The Secret Seaside Escape, actually, when I was kind of like trying to think where I was going to put this story. So yeah, The Seaside was just an absolute gift for it. And it was a pleasure to write. Everything just seemed to come together. Um, I live in Norfolk and we've got Christmas tree plantations quite near the coast here. Uh, So I knew it would work. And yeah, it it was just the perfect place to, to, to put it basically. I so agree. I mean, it's essentially a run-up to Christmas on the Norfolk coast and the setting of Norfolk coast really resonated with me when you talked about the sea stretching out, the tide was too far out and it took me right back to my family holidays in Heacham and Hunstanton. My granddad grew up in um, inland in Marham and you live in Norfolk and my relatives always told stories, my granddad especially, um, almost an element of folklore there. To me, it's a county of storytelling. Is that how you found it living there? Yeah, I think you're right, actually. And that's really interesting what you said about the sea being such a long way away. You know, you could go for a day at Hunstanton and you could spend half the morning walking down to the to the shoreline if the tide was out. Um, so, yeah, we have lots and lots of folklore in Norfolk, things like Black Shuck, um, which has been recently featured in one of Ellie Griffith's books. You know, that was very exciting. Um Yes, and I like to weave a little bit of magic into all the stories if I can. The winter stories always have something about the solstice in. Um, It might be a party at Winthorpe Hall. Um, It might be a celebration on the beach. But there's always an element of of something magical in there, I feel. And I think that befits the county. Absolutely. It's really a special place to me. We we went back in the summer and and it just feels the same as it always has. And the sea, as you said, is always so far out. You think, you know, my children say, can we go down to the sea? And obviously, if it's far out, it would take a very long time. So thank you for incorporating that into your books. I want to know, do you have an illustrated or detailed picture or even like a 3D diagram of of Winmouth or is it all in your head? I can imagine a kind of diorama set up with Christmassy lights and mugs of steaming hot chocolate. So how do you keep this place for your writing um, in your head or do you draw out a map? Do you know, I don't have a map at all. It is all in my head. Um, And when I think of these places, because I've built them up from nothing, I suppose I start with the most basic elements, that very first setting. So in the secret seaside escape, it was the pub and the cottage and the seafront and the little beachside cafe. And then it's sort of as if some magic takes over and the tendrils start to spread and the lanes start to grow. And you imagine 
different things in different places. But yeah, I keep it all in my head. If there's nothing, there's nothing drawn. I do have lists of characters um, and I keep a diary for when things happen in Winbridge during Christmas because we've visited Winbridge quite a few times. So you have to have like the um, the Christmas switch on and the bake sale and the tree auction, things like that. They all have to happen at the same time. So I have notes and things um, to keep those in check, but I don't have anything drawn. Excellent. And I want to know, what is it with the wind bit? Um, I've actually got a, well, I had a, a great auntie Wynne who lived in Seaford. Um, and your settings, Winmouth and Winbridge, all start with wind. So was this intentional? I was looking for something that just sounded good. It was as basic as that. I want to make it sound, you know, cleverer than that, but it really, really wasn't. So we had um, we had the river running through the town. And so I wanted a bridge, the bridge mentioned. So Win Bridge, that seemed to work really well. Um, Winthorpe Hall naturally developed from there. And then when we went to the seaside, uh, if you think about like Great Yarmouth, so you've got the the um, the River Yar comes in from the sea. And I thought, oh, well, it would be a really nice idea if we could make that connection, keep those two places further connected by using Wynn again. So basically, Winmouth is um, the mouth of the river. It's where it all starts to flow in. Oh, fabulous creation. I love hearing about the stories behind these things because you read them <laughs> You kind of take them for granted. So it's it's nice to hear that thought process. And let's talk about the setting of Wynmouth Trees, a Christmas tree plantation. There is something so magical about this setting. It's Liza's late father's legacy. Did you visit any Christmas tree farms to create this imagery? I grew up near one and I know that you get all the scents of the Scots pines and the Norwegian spruces. And did you visit anywhere when you were writing about this? Well, do you know, I plan to. Because the inspiration for the story came from a Country Living magazine article, and that would have been back in November 2019, and they covered um, a rented tree um, business somewhere in the southwest. And I just thought, oh, that would be a fantastic place to set a book. You can see the romance of that instantly. So I made notes about it, didn't think any more of it. And then when it came to actually write the book, I wanted to do the research, but we'd gone into lockdown. So I couldn't actually physically go and visit anywhere. So everything was done online, which was a real shame. And of course, by the time the book was written and edited, it would have been okay to go and visit, but it felt kind of like a little bit too late then. Um, but I'm hoping to go this year. That would be that would be wonderful. But um, but yeah, I had planned to go to all these different places and then I was confined to barracks like everybody else. Well, I found that you really brought it to life. I mean, I, I could almost smell my little Christmas tree that I've got planted in a pot in the garden, you know, um, and feel that those evoking of the senses, which you did just capture. And I really love the idea of renting the tree. So in the book, people can rent them in pots and they can revisit them year after year and take their tree. It's kind of this environmental ethos that Liza's dad wanted to start and not only is it brilliant for the environment, and I love how you bring that in, that ecological side, but also it's really sentimental. So these families are watching their trees grow like pets and even naming them. You know, you've got Belle and one called Clark Sparkly Griswold, which was a nod to one of my favourite Christmas films ever, uh, National Lampoons. Um, how important was it to have this sentimental personalisation aspect of the trees? I, yeah, I really wanted to have both elements in there, you know, the environmental 
impact of using Christmas, a different Christmas tree every year was something that I have been thinking about for a while. Um, but I just loved the idea of these trees like growing up with the children. So when people had got tiny children, the tree would be tiny and then it would grow year on year. And I wanted to kind of forge that connection to the to the tree and have them looked after all year round by winters. So, you know, they could go and they could collect them or have them delivered and they'd be even bigger and in even better condition than they had been the year before. And it felt like it was almost welcoming another member of the family into the house for Christmas time. And I tried to, yeah, I tried to convey that. So I'm pleased that you've picked up on that and that it worked. I, I love that element. And it got me thinking, you know, we've got an artificial tree, but I love, I love the sense of a real one. And I thought, well, this is this is a way to do it. I mean, the one I've got in a pot is tiny. You know, it's grown nearby, yeah, but it probably won't be big enough to the to the kids who are older. But in terms of the environment, there are not only the nods with the renting the Christmas tree, but I found it interesting, especially at the moment where the environment is rightly so, so much in the press. It also said about Norfolk having snow. Now, this is a rarity, I know, for that particular area. Was this again a nod to the changing climate? I wanted to kind of highlight the fact that they was getting snow by the coast. I mean, I know that's not unheard of, but it's not common. So yes, I wanted to get that in there as well. And it was, yeah, I just wanted to make it subtle. You know, when you're writing a book and you've got something that you want to highlight in there, like in um, the Winter Garden last year, a lot of that was about mental health and getting outside during the winter months. Um, but you want to try and do it subtly. You don't want to make it too obvious. So yeah, I just wanted to kind of get a little nod to that in there, really. I don't think we had snow last winter at all. We had it in the spring. Oh, yes, we did. We had snow on January the 16th because that was my daughter's 21st birthday. And we'd had no snow. And she said, wouldn't it be wonderful if we got up tomorrow and everything was covered in snow? And it was. It was like magic. It was wonderful. Bless her heart. She was thrilled about that. Um, but yeah, you know, we had the beast from the east a few years ago. Um but the seasons are just so up and down. The weather is so up and down. So, yes, it was just nice to to be able to to get that in as well, but not too obviously. I love those subtleties. You know, it's feel-good fiction. Some people might say it's fluffy, but to me, there are those layers of topics that you're covering, things that you're highlighting in there. You know, like you say, it's not too strong, but it's there. You're raising the point, which I really love in your writing. And of course, there was the tree dressing, the tradition of adding the baubles on and the childhood crafted angel ornaments with sentiment um, that remind us of our Christmas past. Do you have to delve into your loft to reminisce about these baubles and dressing the tree? And I want to know, are you a 1st of December kind of put up the tree person or a Christmas Eve household? That scene with the um, the toilet roll tube Christmas angel. I'm not sure my kids were very pleased about that. They're 21 and 26 now, and I still put those exact angels on top of my tree. They kind of grapple. They say they don't want them on there, and then they grapple for who's going to go on the top and who's going to be the next one down. But I have those angels, complete with the pipe cleaner halo and the paper doily wings. So, yeah, we have lots and lots of Christmas decorations that have lasted literally decades now, and they're always the favourites. Even though I buy a new decoration, to put on the tree every year it's the tried and tested ones that are falling apart that the kids made with the wonky eyes and the you know the dodgy mouth they're the ones that are the absolute favorites but um, in terms of timing generally the second weekend of December 
that's when the decorations go up on a Saturday so I can just sit and enjoy them on a Sunday. Um, but yeah, second weekend of December, they always go up then. That sounds perfect. And it's nice how you've brought in your own experiences from home into that. And I want to know about these festive beach huts as well that sold the Christmas crafts and the gifts, a kind of local enterprise of talented craftspeople who live in the area. From garlands to ceramics, it made me feel like I wanted to dive into the pages and don my kind of pom-pom hat and gloves and start selling the crafts. I, I, I really got absorbed in it. I thought, oh gosh, this is so nice. This would be such a nice thing to do at weekends to stand in, in the huts and sell all these Christmassy things with the Christmas sounds and the Christmas smells going on. Obviously, with COVID, you wouldn't have been able to go to the Christmas markets. Like, how did you do your research for this element of the book? A lot of that was drawing on places that I'd visited before. There is somewhere in Norfolk that has beach huts set up for for crafters. Um, so yeah, it, and you know, Norwich Market is a permanent market, and they're like little huts as well. So I was thinking about all that sort of thing, and I really wanted another thread that I wanted to include in here was supporting small businesses and independent crafters. Um, so we also had in the Heidi Swain and Friends Facebook book club we had um, a christmas market last week purely online for indie authors and for individual crafters to be able to to sell their wares in the run-up to christmas um and in the giveaways that i've had i have included things from little craft businesses as well to, to to further support that so i wanted to make sure that i was supporting indie businesses but a lot of the a lot of the information that I used had to come from sort of previous experience. But you find that with every book, there'll be so many things that you put in there that you draw on from your past, whether that's your childhood or places that you visited as an adult. Um, you can't get away from that and you don't always realise that you're doing it. Sometimes it will be when you're having the read through of the final edit, you'll go, oh, I remember I used to do that with Nana and Grandad. Or it will be something like in an interview like this that perhaps like Claire has highlighted and you think, oh, gosh, yes, I did do that. That sounds amazing. I love how you draw on all these things. And you're right with such warmth. I mean, there's a phrase in there which I loved. You said the lights in the lodge were all switched on, giving the rooms a warm glow and there was smoke curling out of the chimney. Oh, it's just so nice. You just literally want to get blanket and curl up with it and talking of warmth and hot chocolates you talk about in this book particularly about velvety hot chocolate um liza makes it for a friend maya and adds a flake into a mug with a swirl of squirty cream and sprinkles um on some marshmallows just scrumptious kind of food recipes and drinks and i want to know when you're writing it do you create this hot chocolate with all the marshmallows and the flakes on it occasionally but i couldn't do it every time because i you know that would that would probably wouldn't be good for me to be honest but when i'm writing about things like that it's kind of it's almost a self indulgence because i write about and i describe things how i would like to experience them you know i imagine myself driving up to that lodge and what it would look like or if I haven't got the hot chocolate with me then I imagine what it tastes like and how beautiful I can make it look and how special that is because I think we've all learned over the last couple of years to take pleasure in the really simple things so if you're going to have a hot chocolate make it a good one I think that's such a good point put everything <laughs> on it <laughs> the kitchen sink exactly <laughs> of course there are deeper issues that are sprinkled amongst all the Christmas cheer the shades of life and 
you know, the the different shades of life amongst the lights and amongst all the festivities, the issue of loneliness that Liza would have been lonely in her flat at Christmas if it wasn't for the community and not feeling anything but lonely and sad, she says. And there are issues of young people overlooked for work, school bullying, teenage pregnancies, miscarriages. How important is it to include all these lights and darks and ultimately show that the power of community can shine through and win, if you like. I think it's incredibly important because it's real life. As perfect as the story is that I'm trying to create and to give everybody a happy ending and to put it in a beautiful setting, there, you know, we have to also explore real life. And I find quite often that when a book comes out that's explored one theme or another, I'll have people messaging me and saying that they found the book really helpful. They if was a way through for them um, and it showed them different ways of doing things, perhaps asking for help. I had one lady who messaged me after I'd written one of the, the Christmas books and she had lost a partner at Christmas. Um, and it was three or four years since it had happened. And that was the first year after she'd read the book that she'd ventured up into the loft and got the decorations down and put them up. And I thought if I hadn't have tackled that thread of bereavement at Christmas time, she might not have done that that year. She might not have done it at all. I don't know. It feels like it's sometimes it feels like quite a big responsibility and you have to be really careful with how you handle things and how you talk about things. Um, but, you know, I've worked in schools where there have been bullying and issues that needed sorted out, sorting out. And I think all of us, to some degree or another, have experienced loneliness over the last couple of years, especially those of us who work at home. Um, and yeah, I think it's really important to talk about those things. Don't, you know, because if you're just portraying everybody's lives as absolutely perfect, that's just going to leave your, leave your reader thinking, my life isn't like that. You want to show the way to make it better. It definitely is that relatability, I think, that you bring through in, in your books. You have the most gorgeous four-legged friend in the book, Bandit. Um, it's an adorable husky dog who features heavily in the story. I want to know, what animals have you got at home and do they feature in your writing setup? Uh, I have a black rescue cat called Storm. Um, I took her on when she was a kitten. Her siblings and her were found in an air conditioning shaft in a car park in Norwich and when they had got big enough to start staggering around the car park people realised that they were there um, and she was the last one she wasn't very pretty she was very scrawny with a little triangular face and I thought yeah she's the she's the one for me so she came home about gosh it must be about six years ago now and she's beautiful she's the most lovely trusting little cat she's very small um but she plays absolutely no part in my writing process at all she is banned from the room because she is so minxy she would be all over my lap she would be all over the keyboard so she doesn't form any part of that but before I come in and when I go out she does get lots and lots of cuddles and lots and lots of fuss she's just she's adorable she's lovely and I'm so pleased that you like Bandit he was another rescue I just wanted my hot chocolate there and I wanted the husky dog there instead I had my two cats who were also very mischievous and also banned <laughs> from the house when I'm recording <laughs> otherwise they'd be climbing around everywhere 
<laughs> you have this strong imagery um, also provoking a sense of place and people, the warmth of community, friendships, painting a picture. You talk about words and pictures, which you also do outside of work, if you like, through your journaling. And you've shown some lovely autumnal inspiration in your blog. Um, I want to know, does your journaling help you provide the details of your books or just make you feel more connected to the here and now, particularly with nature? Have you done a winter one? And has this helped you with your winter books? Uh, that's a, Yeah, I'm pleased you've brought that up. Journaling is something that I started doing in March, thanks to my daughter. It's something I've wanted to do for ages, but I'm a bit of a perfectionist. Um, I think lots of authors have lots of notebooks. Uh, and quite often I don't write in mine or I didn't used to because I was so worried about making a mistake and, and messing them up. And my daughter said to me, no, nope, we've got to get over this. You need to be recording things. It's, it's a nice thing to do. So she helped me with the setup. Um, so it's organized on a monthly basis. And so I write something in there every day. And even if it's been an awful day and lots of things have gone wrong, I always make a point of finding something good that's happened there will always be something and I would far rather remember that than the fact that I don't know I couldn't get my laptop to work or my mobile was having a bit of a meltdown so there's always something good that goes in there um, and I have a nature notes section so I take a daily walk I call it my daily dose of green things growing online and I find it is so important for my mental health to get out of the house and away from the screen even if it's just for like 40 minutes or so um so if I see anything exciting you know we've got a sparrow hawk that's taken to visiting the village I think she's set up home here permanently actually so if I see her I'll make a note about that or if I've seen you know a tree that's turning and looks absolutely beautiful I make a note about that um and it's just a really nice record to be able to look back on. And I also write down things like what I'm reading, what I'm writing about, what I'm listening to, um, what I'm watching on TV. And it's just it's a really nice record to be able to look back on. I haven't used it yet for my writing, I don't think, because I haven't been doing it all that long. But saying that, it's going to be really nice to be able to look back through it as I go forward, because I'm almost at the end of the first book now. Um and, and I'll be able to look back and maybe use some of that for inspiration. So thank you for that idea, Claire. I'm going to I'm going to bear that in mind. Well, I want to thank you because I'm thinking right here, right now at lunchtime, I will be going on a nature walk because Perfect. it is easy to stay in, isn't it? And think, oh, just do this with a bit of work or just do that and not go out. I mean, today's a glorious, sunshiny November day. So I think that is so important to reconnect with nature. And I definitely will be going out today. So thank you, Heidi. Oh, you're welcome. We've got one more question here before we go to our reader's question. I want to talk about this strong following that you have on social media, in particularly your Heidi Swain and Friends Facebook book club that you just mentioned earlier. Um, in fact, you call them or they call themselves the Swainettes, which I just <laughs> love. Um, how important is it to have that relationship with your readers, with your fans, if you like? And is there a typical Swainette as well? Absolutely not a typical Swainette. No, couldn't categorise them in any possible way. They're, you know, they're aged from kind of like late teens to late 80s. It's, it's wonderful. Um, yeah, we ha we started off with the Heidi Swain Facebook book club and it's organised and run by Fiona Jenkins and Sue Baker. They came to me with the idea. It was Fiona's idea originally. Sue jumped on board and they set it up and they run it on my behalf. Um, 
And then we realised we wanted to extend it to Heidi Swain and friends so that we could champion other authors and have publication day parties for everybody. And it's just grown and grown and grown. Uh, as I've got, I've got that on Facebook, and I also love Instagram as well, the Bookstagram crowd, um, and lots of followers on Twitter. And I love that. I love that connection that we can have now. I can't imagine what it must have been like to write before social media, because now we're so accessible to our readers, and our readers can contact us. And I love that because they tell me the most amazing things, um, and they all feel like friends. I know lots of people say, oh, you say you've got so many friends online. They're not friends. You don't know them at all. Well, actually, given the last couple of years and, you know, the fact that we've all been stuck at home and been meeting just online, I feel as if I probably know those people online better than I know some of my neighbours. So it's a really, really special thing to have. And I, yeah, it's true. I do spend a lot of time on social media, not to the detriment of the writing, I have to say. I'm very organised about when I go on. Um, but I love to be able to chat with people. I, th I think that's really important. And I like to keep in control of my own social media platforms because... Yeah, I, I want to keep it authentic. I, I want it to be me who's talking to these wonderful Swainettes. I think that's so true. And I think it's so true that you can get that personal relationship through DMs and so yeah. on on social media. And people sometimes find it easier, don't they, to open up. So thank you for highlighting that. And what a fabulous book club that is. It's, you know, I've had a look myself and it is just brilliant. So Thank you for sharing that with us. Now, we've got an audio question that Jenny has sent through. Hello, this is Jenny Worstall with a question for Heidi Swain. Heidi, who is your favourite author and why? <gasps> That's a nightmare question. You're going to make me narrow it down to one person. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, um, you can't really see where I'm sitting properly today, but I have a bookcase behind me and it's absolutely loaded with Trisha Ashley books. I have every single Trisha Ashley book that's ever been published and I have it on my e-reader. I have it in paperback and I have it in hardback. So I suppose <laughs> even though it's a nightmare question to answer, if you're going on the number of books that I've got in my house, it's gonna, it's always going to be Trisha Ashley. She, her writing is just an absolute joy. I have read Trisha for years um, and I was very fortunate to have a joint event with her in Liverpool a couple of years ago. And that was just fantastic. It felt like a real fangirl moment for me to be sitting on the stage with Trisha Ashley. I found myself leaning around Juliet Greenwood, who was interviewing us just so I could look at and listen to Trisha and not actually concentrating what I was supposed to. <laughs> to be saying myself it was fabulous but um yeah I love Trisha Ashley books um and a very close second is Darling Millie Johnson different reasons I think why I love them both you know I know Millie very well um she was actually there at Simon and Schuster on the day that I was offered my first deal um so we've known each other for a while now but um yeah, number one would be Trisha Ashley for me. I know what you mean about that kind of almost, you feel like a fan because yeah. we had Sophie Kinsella on the podcast a few weeks ago and she, I actually interviewed her when I was at New Woman, as it was back then, the magazine, um, 20 years ago when she first released Shopaholic. And so wow. to interview her again, and she's 
always, you know, along there with Millie Johnson and so on. She's always one of those authors that I've had every single book and I absolutely adore. I was actually really nervous about interviewing her, but she was lovely. And that doesn't usually happen to me, but this time it did. So I get what you mean with Trisha. I love that. Yeah. And people say, you know, oh, you should never meet your heroes. Ultimately, they're going to let you down. Well, I can tell you, I've met Trisha Ashley and I've met Jilly Cooper. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And, you know, they were absolutely fabulous. So yeah, I don't hold with that. I don't hold with that at all. Excellent. Thank you for that great answer. We've got another reader's question. This is actually from Linda Hill, who now reviews some of our books online for My Weekly. And she wants to know, I love this question, um, where would you most like to go for a romantic break? Where would I like to go? Do you know, I've read quite a few books this season already. I read quite a lot of Christmas books early on um, because people were asking for quotes and things. And there were lots of trips to see the Northern Lights. So... Oh, but then I guess I could say Norfolk because we've been able to see the Northern Lights in Norfolk this week. So that's not, you know, and I'm used to Norfolk. So um, maybe somewhere like Norway, somewhere nice and cold. I'm thinking about that reindeer rug fantasy that features in Underneath the Christmas Tree there, aren't I? So yeah, that's what I've got to say for now. But if you were to ask me that question in the summer, it might be somewhere completely different. Lovely. <laughs> and I love that, the, the, you know, with the, uh, the cold in Norway, warming up by the fire. Thanks so much, Heidi, for those fantastic answers and listeners for your brilliant questions. Remember, if you've got an all-important question to ask your favourite author, then check out the My Weekly website to find out which big authors are coming up on the podcast. www.myweekly.co.uk forward slash podcasts. And of course, send those questions to flyingbookshop at myweekly.co.uk. After all these fascinating insights from Heidi, you're sure to be wanting a copy of Underneath the Christmas Tree. Don't forget you can swipe down to the episode notes to buy your copy. Chapter 3, Book Post. Here we are in our final chapter with author Heidi Sway. After rifling through our stacks, the book that has made it through the My Weekly Magical Bookshop letterbox this week is The Woman in the Middle by Millie Johnson. As always, we promise not to reveal any spoilers, but just enough to entice you to read. The blurb says Shay Bastable in The Woman in the Middle. She is part of the sandwich generation, caring for her parents and her children, supporting her husband Bruce, holding them all together as best as she can. But then piece by piece, everything Shay thought of as certain in her life is taken away and disaster strikes. She has to put herself first for a change. Sometimes you have to fall out to find where you stand. I found it such a heartwarming and yet completely relatable read. Can you tell me why you picked this book and what drew you to it? I love all of Millie's books. I'm a huge fan of her writing. But there's just something incredibly special about this one. It's almost like she's gone next level. I think this book puts her in a completely different league. As you said, it is so, so relatable. And just when I thought I was beginning to get it all clear in my head and have a bit of an idea where it was going, something else happened. And something else happened and the shocks and the surprises just kept coming. It was amazing. I loved it from the first page to the last page. And I picked it up on a Friday evening late um, and I finished reading it on Sunday afternoon. And it's not very often that I will just keep reading and keep reading until I have finished a whole book in a weekend. So I just, yeah, unputdownable. It's a cliche, I know, but it 
absolutely is a book that you can't put down once you start. It's amazing. I completely agree. I mean, Millie did a live event with me the other week. We did an hour-long live chat uh, for my weekly, and we talked about this whole concept of the sandwich generation that Shay found herself in. How did you find this element of the book of Shay dealing with the younger and also the older generations? And having her to sort of spread herself so thinly. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And I did listen in to that, um, to that hour-long interview that you did with Millie because the idea of that sandwich generation is so, so relatable. I've got lots of friends who are in exactly the same position. I'm kind of there myself, although my parents had me when I was very, very young. So my parents aren't quite at that end of the scale yet but you know my and I'm, I'm not quite sure how it's going to work out for me but I could completely I could completely understand it and I had so much sympathy for what Shay was going for because she was just trying to spread herself so thin and I think we all do that don't we in so many ways I completely agree and you know the other thing I liked about this book was where she wrote about um the younger generation and of course in your book you had the character Liam a young teenager who was struggling a little bit and Millie shines a light on this of the younger 20 something generation so how important is it in books generally do you think to look at the problems that a plethora of generations face from young to old. I think that's really important actually. I have young characters and I also have older characters. So yeah, there are lots of there are lots of problems at either end of the age spectrum. But you know, when I was growing up, the world was a very different place and so we didn't have the same number of problems or not the same number of problems, the same sort of problems that younger people have to face today. Um you know, there are so many, it's so wide and it's so varied. And I loved the point that Millie made about the fact that they, those kids are adults, but they're kind of unformed. They've still got a long way to go. They still need that bit of support, but it's knowing when to back off, when to step in, what to do for them. So I think it's really important to represent that in writing. Um, and I'm sure there are so many people who have picked this book up. And even if they've not gone, oh, this is me, there's been something in there that they have been able to think, that's my family. At one end of the scale or the other, there's something in there that resonates with me. Alongside these sort of depth of issues that are in there and the things that Millie covers, she does her usual. She adds in a load of humour. And I'm particularly thinking of Morton, the older Morton's uh, dialect, who was extremely entertaining. I was shouting at my support for Shay and I found her old friend Leslie's transformation particularly amusing with her new pouty lips and looked like she'd been tanned on a rotisserie that comment that Millie threw in that was sort of <laughs> hilarious did you connect to the characters and what did you make of Millie's sort of trademark witty tone oh she never she never ceases to raise a smile does she I can't tell you how many times I was reading that and my mouth just fell open if you know Millie in real life if you or if you've even watched her online you will know she has got a wicked and a sharp sense of humor she can come back with a comeback quicker than you can you know quicker than you can breathe really so yeah um her characters are all very relatable that jaw-dropping sense that you were saying that Millie does where you're reading it and you think oh I can't believe she's written that she really really pushes the boundaries for when it comes to wit and humour. And I absolutely love that. Did that help you relate to these characters more, do you think? Yeah, I think so. Because she, um, 
yeah, she puts stuff in there from her real life. And I'm so happy that our publisher allows her to do that because you know it's real and because you know some of these things happen. They just, they make you giggle all the more. I mean, you know, you have a conversation with Millie and you're just laughing the whole time. So then to see that she can incorporate that into her fiction as well, it just makes it even more relatable, I think. There's also that sense of hope always throughout her books it doesn't matter what sort of darker issues that she's included in there she always gives a sense of hope and particularly with Shay it felt like she'd gone from being in the middle of a sandwich to it being an open construction that sense of heading towards life that you can grab it with both hands did you find it to be an inspirational book yeah I did very inspirational I mean she really put Shay through it didn't she just when you think that she couldn't get any lower something else happened and I was beginning to think how is she going to pull her back up here how is this going to work but in true Millie style yeah she built her back up she's like a phoenix rising from the ashes Shay was wasn't she and she was better than before she was stronger than before and she'd embraced that new life that she was looking for and I think we can all find that inspirational you know I'm 50 next year and that kind of throws up a few questions and makes you think oh am I doing what I want to be doing am I where I'm where I want to be and if I'm not is it possible for me to change my life can I make these changes and reading something like that and seeing how low Shay was to where she ended up you kind of think yeah yeah if she could do that I could do that and I think that's really important definitely and just the last final question talking about inspiring books and of course that TB are to be read pile that we all have and you've said that you have favorite you know authors and you must have all of those books as well but how do you go about reading your tbr pile and sort of organizing it do you have a particular system i mean i have on my bookshelves like everything that's already come out and then my books that are coming out in months month sections on the book you know the bookcase and um everybody knows do not touch my system (laughs) that's how I kind of get through it and then I usually have about two or three books dotted around the house in various places that I'm currently reading um so that's sort of how I do it but how do you deal with that and do you just go straight to the proofs or do you read the final copies um well I'm like everybody, my TBR is completely out of control. And you're right, you do need an element of organisation to kind of keep it in check a little bit. Um, I have to turn some proofs down now because I know that I'm just not going to get the time to read them. And I hate doing that. Who wants to turn down a book? That's that's not a good thing. Um, I generally tend to read the proofs before I read anything I want to read, especially if I have been asked by an author or by an editor to give a quote for something. And I've said, I'll do it. If I have said I'm going to do it, then that's going to happen first and foremost. They are always a priority. Um, I only used to read one book at a time, but if I'm really pushed now, I have found that I can compartmentalise reading. So I might have nonfiction during the day and then fiction in the evening. Um, I don't really like to do that, but if I have got an awful lot on the go, I I can do that. And I tend to take more proofs as digital copies now because I just can't bear the thought of having to recycle what is in effect a book. That kind of breaks my heart a bit. So lots of digital copies now. Um, If I have a holiday, if I have a bit of a break, ha ha, she says that's a bit tongue in cheek. But if I have a free weekend um, and I'm being self-indulgent, then I will pick up something that... I want to read rather than what I've been asked 
to read. Um, and there, are, I have I have a few books that I read at the same time every year. So on December the 1st, for example, I always read A Christmas Carol. Um, in the spring, I always read Wind in the Willows. In the summer, I always read Darling Buds of May. So I have kind of seasonal reads that I always read. Um, but for the most part, I prioritise the proofs. Excellent. It sounds like you do have a really good system going there. And I, I must admit, to, to relax, I have to read nonfiction now, otherwise I can't switch off. So I agree with that. Thanks for choosing this book, Heidi. What a heartwarming and relatable book. And if you listeners want to grab a copy, then don't forget to swipe down to episode notes to find out how. Thanks so much, Heidi, for coming on the My Weekly Magical Flying Bookshop podcast. Do drop by again soon. Thank you. It's been my absolute pleasure to be here. Time at My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop has come to an end for this episode. Join us next time for more big name authors, stories and extracts read just for you and our favourite book recommendations landing wherever you are. Whether you're out with the dogs, in a pair of sturdy walking shoes, heading into work or cosied up at home in your comfiest slippers. If you love fiction, cooking and interviews with your favourite celebrities, then you'll love My Weekly. And as a listener to The Magical Flying Bookshop, you can try 13 issues of the print or digital magazine for just £6. Head to myweekly.co.uk forward slash podcasts or call 0800 318 846 and quote the offer code MWPOD. That's MWPOD to save more than 60% on the cover price. Check the episode notes for details and terms. That's all for now. Pick up your copy of My Weekly and escape with our fiction stories. And until you pop into the bookshop again, have a wonderful booktastic week. I'm Claire Gill and this was My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop, sponsored by Pavers, your perfect style.